preparing to go to Fiji, I thought I'd better get a haircut. It wasn't real long, but needed to tidy up. And uh, I didn't want to get one while I was in Fiji. I'd done that before, it didn't work out. Uh, so I thought, okay, I need to get a haircut. I was down the street and I thought, oh, dear, it's a freezing cold day. Oh, get a haircut. Oh, well, I'll just have to, be, have to wear a beanie or whatever. So I got a haircut. It was freezing cold and you just had to feel the cold around your ears and stuff anyway. Um, so the last couple of days I've been wearing a beanie to sort of get rid of the cold. I got up this morning and it's freezing cold. I thought, oh, I put my beanie on. Oh, no, I've got to go to church this morning. I wonder how it'd look if I went to church and preached and let it have with a beanie on. I thought, nah, I might not. Go down and write at six, but I didn't know whether nine o'clock was to handle it. So I didn't do it. Um, but it's something that's normally happening when, you, when I'm going to get church, I'm conscious of what I'm wearing. Um, I'm glad that we've changed. I don't have to wear robes because, you know, when I first came minister, you had to wear these silly robes and stuff, and I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Um, and, you know, you have to. You have to dress up, not well, not you know, Be careful what you wear. The clothes I wear around the house, the clothes I wear in the garden, the clothes I wear doing, you know, working on my car, I wouldn't wear them to church. Um, but I did know a minister who, when you wore robes, this is about 50 years ago, when you wore robes, uh, he could be working on his car, working in the garden, throwing his robes and go to church. <laughs> oh, okay, that's the advantage of wearing robes, isn't it? But it's what people see. It's what people see. And sometimes we can be very conscious of what people see. I mean, you know, who didn't worry about their hair before they came out tonight or wash their face or have a shave or, or look at what clothes they're wearing? I mean, there's something about how we appear to others that we do take, uh, put, put to attention, take care with when we're going out to mix with people. Because we're conscious of what people see. But that's the problem that Jesus is dealing with here in this passage. He's got people that are uh, just focusing on what other people see, how religious they appear. But inside, in their heart or in their mind, in their inner being, in their passion, who they really are is totally not right. It's all a show. It raises a question for me is when I come to church, how prepared, I guess I get prepared on the outside, but do I need to get prepared on the inside? And how do I prepare? Because God's not going to look at what I'm wearing. God's going to look at the inside of me in a, in a biblical sense, my heart, but in the normal sense, my desires, my mind, where I'm focused on. That's what he's going to look at. What about all of us? It says a lot about how we prepare when we come to meet together in church or Bible study or any time we gather with other Christians or any time we want to come into God's presence and pray. It says a lot about that. Let's have a look at it. Uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem. Jesus has become really well known. He's a, a great uh, uh, preacher, teacher, miracle worker. Particularly his miracles are really drawing attention. People are coming and checking them out. And these uh, leaders come down and they see Jesus' disciples not washing their hands, eating with unwashed hands. I think... You, rat bags, my mum would even be upset about that. My mum always told me I had to wash my hands. Didn't yours? No, I'm very strict about that. And to eat with dirty hands, you know. But that's not what's going on here. They're talking about ceremonial cleansing. What happens is when they went to the marketplace, the marketplace is like the shopping centre where everyone comes to. It's the centre of town. Everything happens in the marketplace. Uh, things are bought and sold, not just food, but blocks of land. Everything happens in the marketplace. 
And in the marketplace, uh, you'd go and you'd uh, meet people who are non-Jews. Uh, you'd buy things from them. And because they've touched them, they're therefore ceremonially unclean, the Jewish leaders say. And verse 5 of uh, chapter 7. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why, do your disciples, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So it doesn't mean they've got dirty hands from touching the ground or whatever else doing. Uh, it means that they've, they could have touched a Gentile, a non-Jew. They could have touched um, food or, or uh, utensils that a Gentile's touched. And that means that the Jewish leaders are saying they're now unclean ceremonially. But it's a tradition. It's something that they, they've got developed as a tradition and they take the high moral ground. They see themselves as superior. They have pride in keeping these traditions. And it's really a, it's really a show, a religious show. And what does Jesus say in the second part of verse 6? He quotes from Isaiah um, and talk, calls them hypocrites and he says, These people honour me with their lips, but, in, but their hearts are far from me. They worship in me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. They're hypocrites. It is a show. What's on the outside is not what's on the inside. They appear uh, God-focused, but they're not. Not at all. They're focused on themselves. They're concerned about what other people see about them. God's not even, even in the picture. It's all about them and they want to earn their uh, way to being you know, religious, good people. The difference between what they're saying is uh, traditions. Traditions are not in the Bible and they're therefore not binding. Where God will look at the heart of a person rather than the outward actions, the show that they're doing. And God examines the heart, as it says here in verse 6, but their hearts are far from me. God knows every person's heart. He knows your heart and my heart as we come here tonight. What sort of heart did we have? What sort of heart should we have? As we come to meet with God, I mean, I couldn't help, and I'm not, it just does help looking at the sermon today, but as I was walking across, I could see a bit of a moon out there and some stars out. And I noticed them tonight because sometimes it's a bit overcast and it's nice and clear tonight. And I stopped for a moment and thought, wow, the God who created the moon, which is so far away, created me. And the God who created the stars, which are even further away, and their planets and solar systems out there, I can't see, but people tell me they're out there. This is the God who created all this, but the God who knows me personally, knows you personally, the God we're coming to meet with tonight. I don't know about you, I tend to localise God as being here in Richmond with us rather than thinking about how enormous he is. And so straight away I was thinking, wow, God is huge and we're so minute. And then as we reflect on God, we can't help but remember we, he created us but we rebel against him. None of, none of us perfectly submit our life to God. We ignore him. We're like little disobedient children who go off and do our own thing and every now and then come back to the Father when we want something. And because we're disobedient, we should be coming seeking God's mercy, not to be treated as we deserve, but to be forgiven. And we must be recognising his great love for us 
that allows us to come back over and over. And a love that's adopted as sons and daughters. A love that's going to look after us in this life and take us to heaven. That's the sort of heart God wants to see in us. A heart that's focused on him. A heart that understands who he is. Understand what, where we are and what he's done for us to repair our relationship and what our future is going to look like. Look at verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. The commands of God are binding. They're found in the Bible. The traditions are just made up by men, have no authority at all. And then he gives an example of one. In verse 9, he says, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So they don't sort of say, don't do the commands of God, but they develop a tradition that really means the command of God is worthless or put aside or or neutralised. And he gives an example then. Verses 10 to 13, he talks about the fifth commandment, which tells us that we are to um, honour our father and mother so our days may be long in the land which the Lord God gives us. Honour our father and mother. We also know in Leviticus 20 verse 9 that if we uh, curse our parents, then we'll be put to death. So it's a real, you know, there's a blessing there of honouring your parents, but there's also trouble if you don't. Big trouble with God. That's the commands of God. We also know that when parents get older, and, and particularly in Jesus' culture, not so much here because as people get older, uh, we've got superannuation when you can't work. We've got pensions to give us money. You can get nursing care. You can go into a, uh, a nursing home. There's ways you can get looked after here that even the family don't have to do too much. But in Jesus' day, none of that existed. In Jesus' day, uh, and in two-thirds of the world today in the undeveloped countries, uh, when you're unable to work, you've got no income. There's no government money. You don't survive. And it's a duty of your children to look after you and to give you housing, give you food, and take care of your medical needs and whatever. A strong duty. And that existed in Jesus' day. Now, Jesus talks about this word called Corban. And he says that um, by saying um, something is you know, Corbin, um, you could uh, get around your obligation. Um, let me read what it says. Verse 11. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Did you notice what it said there? It says this Corbin. What's Corbin? It's got a word of explanation that is a gift devoted to God. That's not put in by the person who you know, did the NIV Bible. That's, in fact, in the original writing. Remember, we're looking at Peter giving his account of Jesus' life. Mark is the secretary for Peter. And so Peter has actually got a word of explanation for the Hebrew word Corbin here. Why? Because the audience needed it. Because this gospel is not primarily being written for Jewish people. It's being written for non-Jews. And they don't know what Corbin means, so he has to explain it. And what's happening is, where you would uh, have to look after your parents, and you can say, okay, all I have and all I possess is, is Corbin. I'm giving it as a gift to God. 
Therefore, mum and dad, sorry, you miss out. Uh, I've got to give it all to God. Sounds good. But Jesus called them hypocrites a while ago, and this is why they're hypocrites. Because they didn't do that. They didn't take all they have and took it down to the treasury and put it in the offertory. They didn't do that. They kept earning their money. They kept living where they were. They kept enjoying all the benefits of it, but giving none to their parents. And they put on a show, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're just looking after this for God. It all belongs to God. But it really didn't belong to God. It was theirs. It was all a show. And Jesus says in verse 13, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. This was something that was commonly done. And you, have, and you do many things like that. There are other things they were doing. Things that were traditions but were just showing they were hypocrites, two-faced, pretending to be you know, godly people when they weren't at all. So they appear to be religious, but they're lacking any sincerity or commitment to that. Traditions that concern what other people will see, what the audience of other people will think about what they're doing. Instead, the audience they should be looking is God, God who looks at their heart, God who doesn't just see the outward stuff, but knows what's happening on the inside of why you're doing what you're doing. And they're not concerned about God at all. So verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, understand this. So something important's coming. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Now, the Jews have all got this idea, it's all the outside stuff. It's all touching Gentiles. No, it's not. The Jewish leaders have got it wrong. It's what comes out of a person makes them unclean. And we see Jesus illustrating this because back in chapter 2 in verse 15 when Jesus has just called Levi to follow him, Levi the tax collector. Levi is one of the really hated guys by the Jews who's ripping off the Jewish people. He's a Jew but he's ripping his own people off. He's despised and rejected and outcast. And Jesus calls him to follow him and Levi leaves everything, leaves all the money, leaves every job and just goes and follows Jesus. And Levi then throws a party for all his fellow tax collectors and all other sinners that people don't like who are the outcasts to come and meet with Jesus. And Jesus eats with them. He offers them friendship and he teaches them because he wants them to repent and turn back to God. And Jesus is showing by that it's not, not the state of people where they're, you know, what group they come from or what part of society they are from or, or even if they're sinners that doesn't matter what matters is people's heart and whether they're responding to God that's what matters to God that's what matters to Jesus disciples are a bit confused by this in verse 17 they, after the crowd left they entered a house the disciples asked him about this parable Jesus told him a parable. He's talking about the stuff about being unclean and, and what makes a person unclean. And they're just, they're not sort of, it's not clear to them. A parable is something where um, there were a lot of people followed Jesus because he was the greatest show going. There wasn't television, there, but Jesus was a show. He was doing miracles. He was you know, captivating people with you know, things that he did. People came to watch the show from far and wide. 
And while things like that are going on, they're there. But once Jesus starts talking parables, they're a bit like a riddle. And some people said, oh, look, you know, you're going to get on the TV and you want to change the channel because you're sick of the show. Well, they decide they'll change the channel. They'll go somewhere else and watch something else for a while. They'll come back later and see what else Jesus is doing. But then they'll drift off when he does a parable. But the ones who are really interested in Jesus, the ones who are responding to him, not for a show, but wanting to find out who this Jesus is and, and what makes him tick and what's going on, they're the ones who'll stay, stay. And they'll also not just stay, but they'll ask questions to Jesus to explain it, as the disciples have here. But look what Jesus says in verse 18. Are you so dull? Are you thick as a brick? Can't you get it? Remember, we've been looking the last couple of weeks, the disciples have hard hearts. You know, Jesus has been doing them amazing miracles. You know, he fed 5,000 people with a, with a picnic lunch. He fed another 4,000 with a picnic lunch. Uh, then just after that, um, they, they, they're walking around, the, the, Pharisee, the, the religious leaders are there, and Jesus said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that is, beware of the influence of the, their, their teaching and stuff. But they think yeast, bread, oh, we've only got one loaf, we're in trouble with Jesus again because we've only got one loaf. And Jesus says, you know, come on, what have I done? You know, didn't I feed 5,000 and 4,000? And, you know, what's their problem? What was their problem that we saw last week and the week before? They think of Jesus as a miracle worker. They think of him as a prophet, a great teacher. But they don't see Jesus as God. They see Jesus as a man God is working through, but they don't see Jesus as God. And they won't get it until he rises from the dead. They won't get it until the Holy Spirit finally comes upon them in Acts. It'll be a long time coming. And that's why they're so dull here. Because they still don't get it. They're still locked into the way they've grown up to understand God's in heaven, doesn't come down. They're still just trying to wrestle with this whole thing of who is Jesus. Jesus says in verse 19 quite clearly, food doesn't make a person unclean because it doesn't go in his heart. Uh, he says then in verse 20, he expands more. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, from within, out of men's hearts come and all sorts of evil. He's making it clear it's from within. It's from an impure heart these things come. And fellowship with God is not interrupted by unclean hands, whether you wash your hands or not, ceremonial washing. It's interrupted by sin. And the disciples won't understand this. You know, even, even after Pentecost, when the penny drops, Jesus is God, and, and Peter gets up and starts preaching, and 3,000 people come to Christ, and, and the church grows rapidly by thousands, and, and Peter's one of the, you know, the main people that God is using. And four years later, uh, we'll see in Acts chapter 10, uh, we'll see that Peter has this vision of, uh, of uh, food coming down and he's hungry, told to get up and eat, but he won't eat it because it's unclean food by the Jewish standards, so he won't eat it. And this vision happens three times, and then he's told uh, by the, the God, do not call anything unclean what God has made clean. And then Cornelius, a non-Jew, has sent a messenger 
for Peter to come to him. Peter realises God's telling him to go to, to Cornelius, uh, not you, it's unclean, but to go to him and do ministry with him and lead him to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes on him and Peter realises that um, this whole um, Jewish Gentile thing is being broken down by God. He's finally learned. No, he hasn't. Because later on in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, he's in Antioch. And he's now eating with the Jews, he's eating Gentiles. He's learned that part. You can eat with the Gentiles. That's okay. He's got that on board. But then James, the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, comes down to Antioch. And Peter stops eating with the Gentiles because he's afraid of what they'll say about him not upholding the traditions. Peter. The person whom Jesus handed over the church to. You're the rock on whom I'm going to build a church. He commissioned Peter three times to be the, the, the shepherd, the, to love his church, to look after them. He is the leader of the church after Jesus ascends into heaven. And Peter had to keep working on getting it and getting it and getting it. So what does it say for you and me? I'm no Peter. You're not, you're not Peter either. Yeah? Can we have problems with this? Can we maybe have this been a bit of a hard heart problem? Can we maybe have this wrestling with, with sin that even though we're now forgiven and, and sin's been cast out of us, but it still keeps wanting to, to come in and interfere with our lives? You know, out of our hearts still come some of these things. Look what they are. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. You might say, oh, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. But it doesn't mean you're not doing it, even if you think it. Jesus said, even if you think hate towards someone, you've committed murder. Even if you think adultery towards someone, you've committed adultery. You can keep going, even if you, you, know, you think of greed. You've looked at uh, new cars, think, oh, I want one of those, or new clothes, oh, yeah, I want that. Maybe you've committed greed there. None of us are perfect. We know that. All of us have this problem of this uncleanness wanting to come out from within. This, the Bible says that the default setting of our heart is evil. We call it original sin. Start in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It hasn't left us. Original sin. But we've got the antidote, haven't we? In Jesus, because he died on the cross, we're forgiven. And the good news comes that we now have something that transforms us. Because Peter shows this continues to be an issue, but there's a difference that's come over us. We've had a radical heart transplant that God promised in Ezekiel 36, 26. He said, I'll give them a new heart and a new spirit. And we've got that in Jesus. We've been changed and transformed. We're told that in this new transformed heart we have and the fruit of the spirit that's in us in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 is love, joy, peace. It's a totally different list to what's here. It's a list that pleases God. This doesn't. So there's a change that's come over us. But we're still like Peter. We still, it's still not fully there. We've got to still be careful with it. You know what the great commandment is? To love, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your soul. But why does it start with heart? Not part of your heart, but with all your heart. 
all your desires, all your passions. To love God with that inner being and to love him with your whole heart because that heart will affect the rest of who you are too. God wants all our heart. And we've got a heart that's been transformed because of Jesus and the Spirit's coming in us. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above everything else, guard your heart because everything flows from it. Guard your heart. How do we recognize we have a new heart and a new spirit in Jesus? And how do we guard that? How can we, as followers of Jesus Christ, keep getting some input that's going to help our heart? I, I've got to resist input from outside all the time, and so do you. We're forever getting told, you know, you're too busy to go to church, you're too busy to do this, it's more important to do this, you want this, you want that. We're always being tempted by things out there. And they know the heartstrings to pull, they know the buttons to press in us to try and tempt us, to try and get us on board. How can we be strong and resist that? Let's be people who keep focused on Jesus, can never have enough of Jesus. Let's want Jesus more and more and more. Let's have a, an unsatisfiable desire, thirst for Jesus and for knowledge of him. Wanting to please him in all that we do. Let's be people who, who spend time reading the Bible and taking on board what it says. I've got a great thing in my car. I've got this CD. I've actually got the whole Bible on CDs. But I can throw it in my... I've got one in the car. I just press the button and now I'm listening to the Bible being read to me. And it's great. Because someone's got to drive you know, to Parramatta or other side of Sydney or wherever and I can listen to books of the Bible if I want to. How can we take more and more of, of Jesus and God into our life by doing that? Or by praying? You know, if you, if you and I feel anxious and, and unsettled and worried and fearful about things, then we know that's the evil side of our heart starting to rear because what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Particularly the joy and the peace. If you're feeling anxious and worried... If you're feeling unhappy, there's not joy and peace there, is there? So you somehow need to nurture that, that new spiritual heart that we have in the Holy Spirit and put aside that evil heart that wants to rear its head because that's dead, but still wants to keep going. Let's be people who treasure Jesus, who think about him, who just sort of, I mean, I, I sometimes think, why does he bother with me? I'm just such a little insignificant nothing. Why does he bother with me? And I think, if I'm so little and he knows me and he loves me and he died for me and he's given me this ministry role and, and he just keeps doing things in my life, he must really love me. He's faithful. He's reliable. What a privilege that I have. What a privilege that you and I all have. Let's marvel at that. Let's try and get on board that you know, we really are a privileged people. Let it stir our heart. Stir our heart to greater living our lives for Jesus Christ and pleasing him in all we do.